This week on the Backtable Podcast. IR used to be the solution to everybody's problems. And I still think that we're a great solution to a lot of problems. And we are essential to hospitals' futures. And I think we underestimate how important we are to the hospital. And so we have a lot of leverage. We just sort of have to use it and move ourselves in the right direction and move us towards what we want to see an optimal IRDR practice to be. And I think, you know, you sort of have to have a philosophy of what you want that practice to be. And it can't be, it can't be not taking care of patients. It just has to be taking care of patients more efficiently. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Ranger drug-coated balloon from Boston Scientific is backed by exceptional clinical outcomes, consistently demonstrating one-year patency near 90% and the highest ever reported two-year patency for a DCB in a randomized controlled trial. To learn more about how Ranger can help you take the fight to PAD, visit bostonscientific.com forward slash Ranger. That's R-A-N-G-E-R from Boston Scientific. And now back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. And my guest today is Dr. Sabu Gakin, Division Chief of Interventional Radiology at North Shore University in Evanston, Illinois. Sabu, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ali. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So uh, when we talked about what you were going to speak about on this podcast, um, I think it was at SIR last year, and uh, you were very passionate about flipping an IRDR practice. So first, I'd just like to start out by you telling us a little bit about your career trajectory and where you are right now. So you know, I've been in practice for 18 years now. I've been very lucky that a majority of those 18 years, I've been in a leadership position. So almost the entire time, with the exception, I think, of three years, I've been at the home of the IR department. Uh, wow. And that's given me the opportunity to make a lot of mistakes, learn a lot of lessons, uh, <laughs> and to to see a lot of the market forces that are going on with IR and to really see where IR is going to be going in the future. I trained at a community-based radiology program in the uh, Chicago, in Lincoln Park. So I didn't train at a big academic institution. So I was used to community-based IR. So I trained my basic radiology setup was there. I went and I did a fellowship at Rush University, a real academic uh, level training. I stayed on there as an attending for a year. Okay. Uh, and then I got invited to go back out and help with the expansion and coverage of a sort of a rural academic, uh, sorry, a rural practice about 40 miles outside Chicago in a real suburban location uh, that was just on the edge between suburban and rural and sort of build an IR department from the ground up. And so it was a unique experience. I learned a lot. I was there for five years. But during that time, I, I, had, the, I had the unique experience of getting to see what works, what doesn't, sort of what the future of IR was going to be like. And I think it was a great experience for me to see where the strengths and advantages of IR being tied to DR, uh, yeah. being independent of, of DR, and... Um, you know, the academic model and then the combined model are. Were you the only IR at that practice, the one that you, you went out there to, to start? It was remote enough that we were 
paired with a sister hospital that was 40 miles away. So there was another IR individual at the other hospital. And so originally the call model was covered by, we'd cover both hospitals at the same time, but it eventually evolved into that I covered a majority of the call at this hospital, at mm -hmm. the peripheral site, and he covered most of the call at that site. Got it. And so a majority of the call, I, you know, I was more than Q one and a half yeah. <laughs> uh, for a majority of the year sure. to build the practice and grow the practice. So I, I got to do that. And it was a really good experience. I got to see a lot. I got to do a lot. I got to grow the practice from one case a week to 14 cases a day. Wow. And, and build the practice that way. But you got to see the limitations of how much support you were going to get from an administration, how much support you were going to get from a DR side, the logistics, the difficulties, and the resistance from the DR program and the DR partners. I was a partner in that practice, and it was seven partners. Two of us were IR out of the seven partners. So it was a really good experience. But after that, I moved on. I went back to Rush for two years and then went from there to Christ on the south side. I got recruited to Christ, which was a level one trauma center on the south side of Chicago, which historically had a very poor track record of retaining IRs. I was brought in by a big group that was multi-hospital, multi-state, Is was a predecessor to one of the big PE firms that's out there right now. I see. And I was I was brought in with a uh, some targets, some RVU targets of bringing up the whole IR department's RVU targets by 10%, which I met and did. I was there for three years. And then after that, uh, I went to Milwaukee and uh, I got to be the chief of a program up there where we covered 14 hospitals uh, across the state of Wisconsin. And I was there for eight years and then uh, uh, got to grow that practice. And again, a hospital-based employee. Um, and I got to see the challenges of being, of working for the hospital administration. Sure. Uh, and got to see the challenges of working with, underneath the umbrella of DR, as well as with the administration uh, and seeing where, again, I felt the future of IR was going to be. And then I had a unique opportunity and got recruited to come work at uh, North Shore University, which is a nine hospital system that's had some challenges with IR. Got it. Which is a little bit closer when I live. So that's been my course so far. So each of these recruitment uh, opportunities have come up basically because of your track record at the at the prior places, right? At the prior hospitals, yeah. all starting from you leaving Rushed, going to this like rural, suburban, single IR yeah. hospital and building it from the ground up. And, and you've yeah. just, you've just gone from there pretty much. Correct. Wow. And you know, the, that was, that was probably the hardest one. And you know, that was the most culture shock I had leaving an academic IR program and going to somewhere where the referring doctors didn't know what IR was. The staff didn't know what IR did. We basically had to start with scheduling, stock, referring doctors, uh, everything and train everybody up. I had a half a tech and one nurse, and the one nurse would uh, do everything she could to not do IR cases. <laughs> so uh, we had to go from that to, you know, building out, you know, three techs, three nurses, and then two rooms. Luckily, I had a full-time room because they had built cardiology, a whole new wing on the hospital. So I had the geographic footprint. And so the hospital administration said, we want high-end IR. And the radiology group had sort of promised high-end IR. But even the radiology group didn't want to deliver high-end IR. Right. So right. in the Chicagoland area, there's been a history of radiology contracts being brokered as sort of a, a business product. And IR and mammography always has been used as like the anchors to the radiology product. 
And so it's act, it's always been used as sort of a, a marketing anchoring product for the rest of the radiology DR products. So, and it definitely felt that way when I went out to this practice. They said, we definitely want you to succeed, but we don't want to give you a PA. We don't want to support your clinic practice. We don't want to support your vein practice. Plus we have RVU targets. We need you to cover trauma call. We need you to cover the stroke reads so that the CTAs can get wow. read. <laughs> so there's a lot of challenges, but inside sure. the, those parameters, we built an IR practice. And as the IR practice took off, they backed off of some of the requests on the DR side. So that was a nice mix and uh, a give by them as time went on. That's that's amazing. Yeah, because I'm yeah. sure a lot of people are struggling with that same thing. You know, they, they're brought in they're brought in to build high-end IR, but they're not really given the support. So, okay, so you've told me that you have a system. So, um, so let's get into it. Uh, what's your system? So the system is, is that you really got to sort of define some boundaries. So the first thing is to listen to who asks for the high-end IR. Is it really the people who are going to be helping you and defining your daily successes? So with the way that you're hired and then staffed and supplied, is it your DR umbrella that's supplying the resources that you need. You know, is the hospital administration who is not in control of uh, additional resources in terms of physicians, PAs, are they the ones who are asking for high-end IR, but giving the DR group an opportunity to sort of stifle that by letting them say no to things. So is the hospital asking for high-end IR, but then the DR group is saying no? Or is the DR group asking for high-end IR and then the administration of the hospital saying no? So there's ways around each one of those. So if the hospital is asking for it and your DR group is saying no, then you ask the hospital administration to subsidize the hospital, the hospital-based PA and to expand services okay. that way. You might not get another physician, but at least you'll get a PA, you'll get more clinic space, you'll get more room time, you'll get better stock. Uh, you get other opportunities. And then eventually, once you get to a certain size, you can always ask to be moved out from underneath the DR umbrella, which has been successful at some places. That's a really controversial move that has some re repercussions if you don't pull it off right. And then if your group is supportive, but the administration is not, then you can start talking about OBL and clinic space offsite and moving a lot of smaller procedures offsite. When we were at Rush, we built a vein clinic and moved a lot of the smaller procedures off to the vein clinic. And we started calling it the IR clinic because it wasn't just a vein clinic sure. and started doing a lot of there to generate that income. And then just in general, IR doesn't really have a definition. This is one of the real conundrums that IR has in the current days, that there is no good definition of what IR does on a daily basis. So every institution, every hospital you go to, IR means something a little bit differently. So when I got hired to the rural site, I went in, my first case the first week was an IVC filter removal. And then I didn't do a case for another month. Wow. <laughs> I did I did some uppers, I did some lowers, I read some CTAs, yeah. I did a bunch of nothing. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, we need to keep you busy. How about you do some MAMS? And I was like, no. absolutely not. I'm, gonna do, <laughs> I'm like, not going to do MAMS. No legs. <laughs> yeah. But that was a common model to combine IR and MAMS back then. Mm. So, but I knew that would sort of trap me in that. Yeah. So yeah. you have to define the edges of what IR is. Don't get suckered into like low end. I mean, you're taking care of patients. So there are patients at the end of all of these requests. But the question is, is it really the best utilization of IR time and then IR lab space? So NG tube placements, lumbar punctures, a lot of these things that can be done with basic lumbar, with basic fluoro that can be done bedside or it can be done outside the IR lab. Do it outside of IR. 
don't utilize the multi-million dollar resource, this gem, this jewel that the hospital is built and created to do these low end cases. How do you, but how do you do that? Like if, if it's already, if that's already the practice pattern. Right. How do you, how do you turn that off? Right. So now you've got to start doing, because this is IR by committee. So it's easy when you're a solo practitioner somewhere. You can say, you know what, we don't do that here. Or you can say, we're going to start doing that over in radiology land. And so say that that is a DR procedure we're going to do in radiology with an IR doctor. Mm. So it becomes a radiology procedure. And that changes the, that changes the narrative that it's a radiology procedure that's being done with an IR doctor. And don't let them sort of move that into IR onto your schedule. So the scheduling, the resources, the techs, the nurses, all of that, the equipment, all of it stays in DR. And then if you're busy and not available, somebody from DR has to help you cover for it. Because if it's a lower end, smaller procedure, if you can do it, there's obviously people in DR who can do it. And then there are other things that are, that are IR cases that you can sort of move off the, the books as well. Sinograms, hate sinograms, like sinograms, tube checks, abscessograms, like those should be, you're changing a tube, you're upsizing a tube just to check a tube, to check a tube because it's been there for a couple of days. That's a complete waste of resources. And I think at one point I had sort of emailed you the- the drain management algorithm, which is so clutch, by the way. Thank you for that. Yeah. So like stuff like that really moves cases out of the IR and lets you be more clinical on the floor and lets you preserve the sanctity of the IR suite. When you only have the IR suite to work in, everything becomes an IR case. The G-tube is leaking. The Neftube is out of, has weird output. This abscess drain, it went from being, you know, purulent to being bloody. So everything turns into an IR case, Mm -hmm. which in a certain mindset generates RVUs, but it prolongs your day, it burns out staff, devalues what you do as an IR doctor, and so, You've got to sort of move that away so that you can sort of use IR and leave space for the bigger and better cases that you want to build into IR and sort of transition your practice into. Okay. When you do that, there's going to be a period of time, right, where you haven't, you haven't built your bigger cases yet, but you're saying I'm, or people are going to read it as you're saying, I'm too good to place temporary dialysis catheters. I'm too good to do sinograms. I'm, I only want to do high end IR. How do you, right. how do you like, uh, you know, deal with the, the pushback about that? So there's a couple of things in there. So one, if you're doing IR by committee, which is what a lot of us have to do, there's a bunch of different players who trained at different times at different sites. You got to start having conversations about the philosophy of the practice. You got to start saying like, who's going to make decisions for today? If it's one doctor, one site, and they decide what happens today, that's great. Then you can decide how the day goes. If it's one doctor and there's like three practitioners for the day and you're making decisions for how somebody else handles the end of the day, um, like, you know, you're deciding the last four cases that person has before they leave, that gets a little testy. If they're going to do three sinograms at the end of the day and they could have been home at five, right. or now you're talking about them being home at nine o'clock. Yeah. So you do have to sort of create like a platform, a text chat. Like we have Slack that we used. We used it in my last practice. We use it here. So that you can start having this narrative about like, what do you guys think about getting rid of sinograms unless there's a real, like you're going to change a tube, you're going to reposition a tube based on a CT scan, based on weird outputs, instead of just saying every six days, we're going to change this tube. And then you can start changing the narrative on how people think about it. Like most IR people have never been formally trained on drain management. Right. They've <laughs> never been formally trained on it. 
a lot of them, their practice, their fellowship was never part, their fellowship, they never put in drains or they did learn how to put drains in while they were a DR fellow and they never followed up on how to manage or change drains or remember it at all. And you ask them questions like, when you were training, how did people manage it? They're like, well, we don't know. The surgeon would call down and tell us to change it. That's how we manage it. So your management is just listening to a surgeon. So yeah, it's not a great management. So you have to sort of build out that concept of having a group philosophy of how to handle those things. Now, temporary dialysis catheters is a little bit different because I don't know if, you, if you're going to be a player in the dialysis field, you kind of get stuck with temps. You sort of have to do those uh, at some point or another. Now, doing bedside temps is a different story. I, I don't believe in traveling to the floor very much unless you absolutely have to. But, you know, you sort of have to think of the practices as, you know, for some reason, I go to analogies for a lot of things, but I think of, you know, IR practices that don't have a lot of oversight and philosophy in them that sort of go down to the bottom level of IR. They go to, you know, just mortar cases. Like, you know, if you talk, talk about brick and mortar yeah. and like other construction right. mediums, like picks, paras, like thyroid biopsies, yeah. tube mm -hmm. checks, these are just mortar cases. They hold the practice together, but those alone can't build anything. You can't really do anything with that. So you've got to get cases that are more like bricks and you have to do a little bit of work to build those practice lines and service lines. So it takes a little bit of work to build like dialysis work, filters, you know, some other things like biliary, you know, some of this other stuff. And then you can build those, those things out, organ biopsies, UFEs, vertebroplasties, stuff like that. And then when you get really good and you have the full clinical spectrum, then you can bring in like IO or PAD or venous work, uh, central and peripheral, but that take group thought. You have to have all your partners on board. There's people in your practice who are going to want to help you with that. There are people in your practice who have no interest in it and can help be gatekeepers so that when they're on call, they'll be like, oh, full body DVT. I don't do it, but my partner does it. So put them on heparin. We'll see it in the morning. But then there's going to be people in your practice who might not be interested at all in it and might want to see you fail. And those are the people <laughs> that are the most dangerous. So you find out those people. And that's part of the formula. You've got to figure out who your points of resistance are going to be in your okay. practice. So that's another point. So let's talk about that for a second. In every practice, there's going to be points of resistance. Your points of resistance are going to be people who want to see the status quo stay. And those people are comfortable with the way things go. And it might be that they're comfortable with the state, the way things are just because they like it that way, because they're comfortable with it and because they're fearful of the unknown. The new way might be a lot easier. They just are really comfortable with how things are now. And that might be some nurse manager. That might be a radiologist. That might be an interventional radiologist. And so they're sort of the people you have to win over and you have to be really clear about and sort of address a lot of things to it. For some reason, you have to drop down to their level and address them and get them on board. And if you forget about them, they will undermine you the entire time. So it's a really, it's a really important part of change management. When you float a new idea out there, you have to look around and say, who are going to be my points of resistance to this change? If we want to go to a drain management protocol, who's going to have the hardest time with this? And it might be somebody who's like, I really like at the end of my case saying, come back in six days, no matter what. <laughs> I'm like, but why did you pick six days? Where'd that number six days come from? And they'll be like, you know, that's the way it was when I trained. And then I'll reach out to that person's program director when they trained 20 yeah. years ago and say, look, 
the next time you talk to this guy, can you tell him that you don't do tube checks every six days anymore at your institution? Wow. Okay. So you you got you're 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 like recruiting from outside to get people on your team. Oh. I mean, I guess that works with doctors, but what are your what are your tips for like when it's the administrators that don't want to play ball? Right. So the administrators are a little bit tougher because they have lots of time. It's like you'll find mid-level administrators who have lots of time and nothing else to do. So you sort of have to bring them in. <laughs> and then Winston Churchill said, never let a good disaster go unused or something like that. That's one of his famous quotes. Yeah. Look for an opportunity where something went wrong uh -huh. and then say, look, this would have been the perfect situation where if we had changed before this, this situation wouldn't have happened and this patient wouldn't have gotten harmed mm. or this delay wouldn't have happened. This situation wouldn't have gone wrong. And so you can use that a lot. And a lot of the times these little incremental changes that you're doing are to improve patient care and to, to improve patient flow and to improve overall care. And you can see them everywhere. And so you just have to wait long enough and then sort of jump on the opportunity when something goes wrong, say, look, this is the prime time to change blank. And so this is the idea we were floating out there. This is the time to change it. And a lot of people won't fight with you too much about that. But if you say out of the blue, I feel like changing this, people might fight with you a little bit about that. Sure, sure. Just because you're changing things to change things. So, so of the other things, one is getting rid of small cases off of your schedule and make sure that the patient's taken care of. So it's not like you can walk away from all paras and thoras and thyroid biopsies. You have to make sure somewhere they have somewhere to go. You want to make sure that they're managed and someone can do them somewhere else. So you want to eliminate a lot of those things. Two, there's a decision fatigue that happens throughout the day. Okay. Where it's a bunch of little phone calls that happen all day long with questions about workflow. Yeah. Does this patient need an IV? Does this patient need antibiotics? Patient's labs aren't back yet. Half of the patient's labs are back yet. Can we go into the room? This was hemolyzed. Do we need this? Do we not need that? Uh, this is a procedure that's like this other procedure. Is this okay if we do that? Uh, what position do you want this patient in? All of that might be okay in academics when the fellows answer the questions. Yeah. Uh, and there's <laughs> residents and fellows to do all that stuff. Yeah. It's not okay when you're in an IRDR program. You want quiet. You want everybody to know what they're doing. Well-run businesses, everybody knows, knows what they're doing. So you want all that delineated. You want a set of documents that help run your day. You want a pre-procedure antibiotic protocol. You want a pre-procedure antithrombotic protocol. Preference cards for physicians so that positioning, you can go into the room knowing what people need uh, so that there's not a 20-minute conversation before every case about how to set up things. Those sorts of things really help tamp down the workflow um, and eliminate a lot of questions and then eliminate a lot of ability to sort of lead to physician fatigue. There are physicians who like that opportunity to sort of exert dominance over the workflow and be like, oh, I definitely need this or, oh, you should know better and you would always order this. Like it doesn't, it totally matters. <laughs> it totally matters, but it shouldn't change. Every okay. declot is exactly the same. Yes. Every filter yeah. is exactly the same. Yeah. And so the SR guidelines are amazing. They sure they're just are. Not, yeah. They're just not written in a way that's really easy to understand for somebody who has a nursing degree or an MA degree or not even an MA degree, like a scheduler. So now the level of schedulers that we're getting are even lower and lower. So for them to go through the app and figure out what to do with pre-procedure antithrombotics, it's not great. So, you know, going to a grid 
that has the name of every IR procedure you can imagine that we have on there. And just going across the line, CBC, a CMP, INR, and just have a box next to it. Yes, no, last 90 days, not needed. It's great. And so those documents I take with me everywhere I go. And I say, this is going to be the new list. They're like, oh, our old list only had 30 procedures. It was great. I'm like, <laughs> oh, everything you did in IR was on those 30 procedures. They're like, well, no, we would call a lot of the time. Yeah. I'm like, no more calling. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, get them all out. If there's something that's not on this list, you let me know, we'll add it on there. Do you track that kind of stuff? Like track how often the like people are calling you or nurses are calling you and asking you about stuff and... Is that kind of, is that something you can look at as like a metric for you're simplifying your practice or you just show up, you have your grids. This is what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I would love to track it as a metric. I don't though. I give people a chance because there are nurses and techs who think that that is a definition of being a good nurse or tech. There are people who have been trained that they think being a good nurse or tech is asking those questions. And then knowing half of that information, they're like, you know, this patient's a dialysis patient. I'm going to get a potassium, right? And that makes them a good, that makes them a right, good nurse. Right. And I was like, no, that does make you a good nurse. Be a great nurse would be to just tell me the potassium when I'm in the room and not even having to tell me that you drew the potassium. So I don't want to necessarily like punish them for calling me. You don't want to sort of get in the way of patient care if there's really some aberration out there. I want to give them the tools for the expectation. You know, I think satisfaction and job satisfaction comes from meeting an expectation. And I think part of the problem with IR is that we don't have an expectation for people to meet. ACC, stroke teams, a lot of these other things, they have expectations yeah. and then they have what to do to meet them, right? There's time to balloon, there's time to groin, there's a lot of that stuff. We don't have a lot of that right. in IR. So what's the expectation our nurses and techs are trying to meet? What That's is it? Like we don't have yeah. anything. So, yeah. so I can say, look, you know, you want to know what labs to draw. You want to know what antibiotics to give. You want to know all these things. Here are the tools to do it. You can call me if you have questions about it. But, you know, after the first time, 10 times you call me, you'll never need to call me again. And I don't need to remember it. That part of my brain I could use for something else. So people call me and ask me, I'm like, oh, I haven't looked at that in like a year. I'll be happy to look at it again. But it's not something that I keep at the tip of my brain the way I did when I was a fellow or a resident. And so that decision fatigue for me lets me use part of my brain for something else. And so now I can say, I want to learn about prostate artery embolization. I want to learn about something new instead of being mired down in a million questions about little things throughout the day. So those documents I bring with me and... um Modern hospital-based IR is not friendly to documents. People, <laughs> people don't like, there's not a place, good place for storage. There's not a good place for retention. There's not a good place for displaying them. So you have to sort of find somewhere to, to display them and retain them and then all that stuff. So that's also a process. In it. And as the chief, you can do that. As the chief, you can say, this is what we need to do. And on the radiology side, there's usually protocols and templates for CT scans and MRIs. So they understand that on the other side. And anytime you get resistance, I just sort of say, can you imagine if every CT tech called you every single day and said, there's a patient with a PE, how do you want to scan that? And then they said, what do you mean by a CT PE protocol? Like, so do I start <laughs> with the top of the head and then do I scan to the bottom of their toes? <laughs> and so like, like every IVC filter is exactly the same for me. So 
it should be exactly the same every time. So yeah, the structure of those documents, moving small cases out of the department, and then it's reaching out to the other services and then it's building service lines. You have to get trust a lot of the, your end providers who are going to be the subspecialists that you work with a lot, your hepatologists, your surgeons, uh, your nephrologists, a lot of those people, eventually it's an epic world now, um, for a lot of people. So a lot of your epic interactions with people really have to be IR based. So a lot of the taglines that I put have the scheduling numbers for all of our sites so that they can see all of the scheduling that we do for places that when I do PAD, I try to include PAD pictures pre and post in my op report. Uh, so I'll cut and paste. Uh, it's a very powerful move. Cardiology used to do it with diagrams of the heart, like before and after when you actually bring in actual images into the post-op note, that actually helps a lot. And, uh, people love that, but that's one of the things, if you're going to do PAD work, there's nothing as powerful as a pre and post picture for PAD. And that's really around the primary care doctors. When you get to that point and start marketing to the primary care doctors or the wound care doctors, if you're going to do in the PAD. So getting you back kind of on the, what we can do to flip. So we've talked about kind of moving small cases off of your menu to somewhere safe. Um, and then dealing with a lot of the minute to minute interruptions by staff, by, by creating protocols and grids and then reaching out to refers. So what else do we have to do to, to really get into IRDR bootcamp? Right. So then the other thing, which is the hardest sell to your DR colleagues is the clinic and clinical time, because they see no value whatsoever to clinical time. They say at the end of the day, wouldn't you get those cases anyways? <laughs> What's the point of a pre-procedure consult? What's the point to a follow-up consult? Uh, what's the point at running any sort of clinic time whatsoever? Why don't you have the surgeon talk to that patient ahead of time and tell them all the risk benefits and complications? Why don't you have the surgeon see the patient afterwards and let them know how things are going and how things are, are healing? So carving out, finding clinic space, and then allocating yourself to clinic time is one of the hardest things when it comes to the DR side. And so then you've got to run some numbers. You got to have a spreadsheet and talk about downstream revenue and the imaging side that comes from the procedures that come out of the clinic. You know, the average UFE, and again, this is old because this is the way it used to be, is that, you know, for every UFE, you would get four MRIs. You'd get a pre-MRI and then three follow-ups. We don't do that anymore, but I still leave that in my <laughs> spreadsheet. You know, for our, for our PAD work, you get, you know, a set of pre-op imaging, a CTA, some uh, arterial ultrasounds, and then you get ultrasounds post-op one month. And then you get serial ultrasounds every six months from there on. And so you start saying that, look, we're going to be the drivers of post-op imaging. And then the conversation is, well, the referring doctor would order that anyways. We're going to capture that anyways. And you could say, no, you're not. These referring doctors are going to send it out to their imaging center or to another hospital system. If it stays with me in my clinic, I'll guarantee that they all stay here inside the system. And they can be read by us and they'll be inside our system. So that cell gets a lot easier when they see the downstream imaging that comes out of that space. So that is a hard push, uh, but it's definitely something that has to be uh, concerned. And then you can talk about veins. If you're really comfortable doing EVLT or EVLA of veins, that's an easy sell. But I don't get too much into the money of EVLA because they will want to turn it into a profit center on the 
on the same level of you sitting and doing a diagnostic shift. So nothing generates the amount of money as sitting down and reading a full shift of DR, you know, CTs and MRs. But we're not in that game, right? We are not diagnostic radiologists. We're not doing it for that. We're doing IR work. So in the IR work, how do you, you know, generate, how do you generate enough money to cover your, cover your nut or be profitable and just enough to sort of stay in the game? And so you can throw in some veins. If, you know, in the old days, we used to talk about doing and building a vein clinic. And even like when I built my first vein clinic, they're like, oh, if you do three veins every time you have the vein clinic open once a week, you'll break even. But if you do 10 veins, you can, you'll, you'll generate an extra like 400,000 per year. And then we can hire another breast imager. So the yeah. next breast imager <laughs> hire is going to be relying on you doing all these veins. And I was like, yeah, but I don't want to do all those veins. That's not my goal. My goal is not to generate, to be like a vein doctor. My job is to be an interventional radiologist and take care of these patients. So that's the thing is that the hardest sell is always going to be the clinical aspect of it because the DR side just never sees any value to that. And that really is going to be long-term the hardest aspect of IR in the future. And so the jobs I take now have the least amount of DR oversight. So like this job right now, I have very little DR oversight. Um, I do report to the DR side, but uh, with very little oversight. So a lot of the decisions and compensation comes through the hospital administration with very little oversight from DR. Um, We read CTAs, we do some of the DR work, but we don't have designated DR shifts anymore. So for me, um, moving this practice to modern IR practice is a little bit easier. Uh, because we're not as entangled as the traditional IRDR practice. So I think one thing really important that you touched on is all of these positions that you've taken after your first one, you've had the mandate to come in and change, right? To come in and change yeah. the, the system. So whoever hired you said, we're going to bring Dr. Gakin in. He's going to fix it. He's um, he's going to make this place awesome. But some of them meant it. Yeah. Some of them didn't mean it. Okay. Some of them said it with an asterisk that nobody's ever been able to mean it. Let's throw this guy on there and see if he can do it. Okay. So yeah, there was some of that too. So where do you see people fail when they're when they're you know get brought in in a leadership role like you are, and yeah. you know, it's just too much for them? What what are the yeah? How do they get flummoxed? Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that will throw people off sidetrack. When you don't realize, when you realize that not everybody is there for the same purpose, there are people that are there just to get through the day and go home. So for sure, the nursing staff, the techs, everybody wants to do a good job. Everybody wants to take care of patients, but there are people who have ulterior motives. And a lot of it has to do with that SWAT status quo I was talking about. There are people that just don't want to see change for the sake of not seeing change happen. So I, I, I mean, I've seen levels of frustration. I mean, I've been close to having levels of frustration in the past too. It's tough. I was at a meltdown meeting once and one of the administrators from Northwestern talked about, he's an IR guy who moved into the administration. I'm blanking on his name right now, but he says the difference between administration and IR is that IRs will find a solution by the time they time they walk to the end of the hallway. So between the time you you leave your office to the time you get to the angio suite, you will have a solution to a problem. Whereas the administration takes about 18 months to find a solution to something. (laughs) So when you go to the administration and you need something, you have to be prepared for an 18 month timeline for things. And it's really, really hard to wait for that 18 months. So when you say, hey, I need a new room, I need a new clinic, they totally will be working on it. 
but they won't tell you they're working on it. They won't give you any signs of working on it, but in the background, they will be working on it. You just sort of have to have faith that they're working on it and then give them that 18 months to work on because it takes them a really long time to change things in their world. Whereas we have the ability to change things a little bit faster. But um, yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of people who uh, at every level who don't want to see change happen and are resistant to the change. Uh, and even if for their own good, when I was at Christ, just for a quick story, when I was at Christ, the nurses who did the IR cases would have no supplies with them in the room. They would bring into the room a little bag, a biohazard bag full of everything they needed, IV tubing, syringes, O2 tubing, the CO2 monitor stuff, and they would throw it out. I'd say, so what happens when something goes wrong in the middle of the case and you need yank out or suction or like more IV? They would all leave. So I'd be like, can I get suction? They would leave for five minutes and then they would come back. <laughs> and so finally I said to the administration, we need some carts in here on wheels with some drawers so that we can stock. They're like, well, who's going to stock it? They're like, who's going to stock it? Who's going to be in charge of it? I'm like, I don't know, but I need some stuff in here so that my nurses don't disappear when things go wrong. And they said, well, you know, we'll buy the carts. So we bought the carts and I stocked them in the middle of the department. All the nurses and techs stood around. And then the chairman of radiology saw me stocking these carts. And he's like, you know, the list is really long. I'm like, you know, I'm sorry. This, I need to prioritize this right now. He's like, I need to fill these carts with preloaded syringes, IV tubings, yank hours, <laughs> like all this stuff. And I organized it all. I made labels. And everybody just stood there watching me. The next day, we had a pediatric code in, in, in the IR department. No way. Yeah. And I said, and I went over to the cart and I closed the top drawer and I said, do you guys need this? They're like, get it out of our way. And I was like, it's amazing. What would you guys have done without this drawer? <laughs> and so like, it's one of those things that people embrace change when they need it. Yeah. Otherwise they just are just fighting it. But literally I had the chairman of radiology tell me that I had other things that were more important than changing a department to bring it up and be better. So wow, there are people, so every once in a while you sort of have to stand up for the change and see that there's a natural evolution that has to happen. You just gotta, somebody's gotta walk in and say, why are things the way they are? Why is it this way? And nobody knows. Nobody knows why IR is the way they are in certain places. And you just sort of have to change it and bring it up to it. So for me, it's been a really good experience so far, but yeah. That is a powerful story, man. And the timing couldn't have been better. <laughs> it was great. I ran into the code just to see what was going on with the carts. Everybody uh else ran in to see what was going on with the patient, but yeah. But my cards. <laughs> okay, so we. what about when you have other IR guys who've been there for a long time and they don't want it to change? How do you get, how do you get those guys to change? Yeah, so other IR people. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's where the slack comes in. You sort of have to start changing your mindset a little bit. You start to have to talk about the philosophy of IR. And pretty soon you can tell people who are on board, they're going to be the people who are IR hobbyists where... They really went into IR so that they could do DR and they wanted a better DR job and they do like a 60-40 DR IR split. And when you start making these changes, they realize that maybe they're not meant for the future of IR. They're really meant to be a DR person and you sort of sideline them and they go away um, and they'll retire. And they're not really comfortable on call. They're not comfortable with a lot of procedures. They do a lot of biopsies. They do a lot of minor stuff. Yeah. They don't know how to do anything complicated. But, but those people can really sandbag you, you know, because they can be on call and then they get this awesome case and they're like, oh, we don't do that, you know? Correct. Absolutely. And so you have to be available for them through Slack and through other yeah. medium and say, like, yeah. what happened with that? And next time that happens, call me. And 
you know, they're the ones that will sort of, you know, destroy your practice by telling and training people, we don't do that at this hospital system, oh, send gosh, it away. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing worse than those guys. And you have to call them out on that every once in a while. Be like, look, man, the next time there's a tips, there's a this, there's a that, just call me, I'll take care of it. And, you know, if it's an emergency thing, that that kind of sucks that you have to be that person on call all the time, but at least you're sort of available and you can train them right. up to, to at least admit the patient and that you'll take care of it at another time if possible. But those are the hobbyists. Those are the guys that that really never did a formal fellowship, maybe did a fellowship, but don't really have the, the, you know, the passion for it. They don't really go to the SIR meetings. They don't listen to back table. They don't do this <laughs> stuff. And so, but then there's other people that do IR, but they really want everybody else to be in charge and make decisions of everything. The model of IR they practice, they want somebody else to decide what procedure they're doing. They want them to decide how the follow-up goes. They want them to decide everything about the procedure. That model of IR, I don't like it very much because it doesn't really take into consideration taking care of the patient as fast as possible. You want your drains out of the patient as fast as possible. You want to get their angiograms done as fast as possible. You right. don't want to lose them to a competing service. You want to do what's right by the patient. You want to get them, you know, their care completed with as few procedures as possible. Um, so those guys, there's a role for them. I think you can coach them. You can keep them in the practice. But you have to let them know that there's an electronic way to connect them to you so that they can have bigger resources in the practice. And then there's the the more aggressive, the higher end real interventional radiologists or the high end IR people. And I think as we graduate, more and more people who only know how to do IR will see more and more of those out in the community who are really passionate about taking care of patients and want to do high end IR. But to get to high end IR, you have to get through the medium and low end high uh, IR and sort of keep those parts of the practice rolling so that you can get to the high end stuff. And I don't know if there's a way to really do high end without doing all those other things in there too. So you have to sort of commit to the to the middle and the low end uh, so that you can get the high end going. Yeah, you you can't be an IR elitist. You cannot be. You have yeah. to do you have to do the regular stuff too and Yeah. That's just I hope my hopes for people coming out of training now is that they don't get so down on what their job is when they start, that they don't see the, see the potential of what it could be. Right. No, absolutely. And so I think there's some hard conversations people have to have. You're not going to be able to go into a job and just do Y90s the right. rest of your lives. For some reason, people pick that as a prime example, but like whatever it is, IVC, cable reconstructions, you know, just do tips all day long. There's not a lot of those practices. There's just not enough patients concentrated in one area to do that. Yeah, I think you have to do the low end or be able to do the low end or cover the low end so that you can get to the higher end stuff uh, on the day. But you also have to make sure your practice isn't overwhelmed with the lower end. So like, that's my point of saying what to do with the lower end stuff. Um, you want to make sure the lower end stuff doesn't overwhelm the practice and take things over. I personally really dislike thyroid biopsies. <laughs> and everybody who's ever met me knows that. So, but if you let thyroid biopsies, they will take over your practice. There's a huge population of patients who need thyroid biopsies. Uh, if you have bad radiologists, you know, enacting TIRADS helps. Um, but, you know, we put a limit on how many we schedule per day, and that really helps where we do them out in the bay in a different area, not in the IR suite. Um, so anybody who tells me that every case has to be done in an IR suite, I I say you need to get an exemption for thyroid biopsies right away. Because <laughs> if you're using an IR suite to do thyroid biopsies, that's a yeah. crime. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
How do you how do you feel about um, using mid levels to do a lot of these basic cases that are that you can do over and over again? Like we have uh, in our practice, we have like an army of mid levels that just do paras, thoras, lines, drains, ports, picks, that stuff. I think it's okay. I think um, tempered the right way. I went from a practice where we use mid levels to run the clinical side of the practice and help sort of run. You know, the, the clinical aspect of things help with pre-authorizations, scheduling a little bit, um, really helped with rounding and then drain management and sort of be our clinical uh, reference point with the patients and help with access. Um, and then they did a little bit of some of the procedures. And now I'm in a practice where, you know, every like procedure that's deemed a PA case or a mid-level case gets done by them. So it's definitely a culture change for me to see that where Every port, every para, every thora, um, every thyroid biopsy gets done by them. The ramifications are is that there is zero resistance to doing pick lines in IR and paras and thoras, and every other service in the hospital has moved away from that. And so at five o'clock, when they go home, it becomes my responsibility. That's a good point. And so it, it has created a, a culture of zero resistance during the day. But then at five o'clock, when it's the attending on call, there's a lot of resistance. And um, the attendings who are on call are very unhappy about it because it's just this dichotomy that happens when, you know, everybody waits till five uh, to get something done. And then it's a different, different response from the IR department. So I think it's okay. But I also think that if you are not careful, you're sort of limiting how many physician resources you actually need. Like in this practice, there's six doctors and uh, four PAs. And in actuality, we probably need eight doctors and two PAs. And the, the crutch of the PAs has, has stopped us from getting more doctors and then more call coverage and more like vacation coverage and other things. So I think that, yeah, you just have to be careful with how much you're letting them do. And it's not like, I'm afraid that they're going to put us out of work. Uh, I just think that it's sort of their, their ability to help out just sort of punishes us on the weeks and at night and on sure, the weekends. Sure. And then it doesn't let us, it doesn't let us sort of extend out that clinical side. So when I say, let's go do some rounding, let's see people in the clinic, they're like, no, I'm going to go do a port or I'm going to go do something else. And I'm like, you know, that's kind of what I should be doing. So mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a, it's a little bit of a weird situation. I really, the, the workflow I came from before worked a little bit better. And I think nurse practitioners, uh, are more comfortable doing the clinical thing, whereas the PAs really like doing procedures. And I said this at one of the SIR, uh, ACIR uh, open meetings that I think, you know, if you're using extenders, uh, you have to be careful about it and how it fits in your practice. If you're using it as a physician replacement, uh, it can get a little dangerous. If you're using it as a physician extender, I think it's great. If they can work independently somewhere else without supervision, it's great. If they have to be somewhere completely supervised and you have to be available, like why? Why have them at all? Why? Yeah. yeah why have them there? So. No, I mean, there's just, there's so many different models out there for hospital-based IR. And there's, I don't think there's one that I've, that I've encountered where I'm like, that's the Mecca. That's what we should all be because it's, it's uh, all politics are local. Right. And, and, and yeah. you, you've probably seen, you've mainly worked in the Chicagoland area. I know you and I were, we were kind of, um, in different practices when I was in Milwaukee. But uh, when I looked at your practice in Milwaukee, I was like, wow, they got it figured out. <laughs> right. And then here you are, you're at a, you're at a different spot right. in, in Illinois yeah. now. Right. 
Well, the, the other nice thing about the Milwaukee practice is that the DR side gave us a little bit more freedom to do what we wanted when it came to call coverage. And then our work days, so our call days, we could sort of stagger start our, the person on call. And then our vacation was a little bit independent. And then we actually could create jobs where you could work with taking a lot of call and then you could be on vacation a lot. So the more call you took, the more vacation you got. Um, there's a lot of things you can do creatively with call coverage if you have, if you're separate than DR. So if you keep on asking like the DR people, like, you know, for permission to do everything, the way they build their models, well, nowadays their model is completely different than the way it was before where everything had to be equal. Now they're a little bit more flexible with, you know, time shifted models. They work evening, they work nights, they reward for working off time and off shift. So that stuff really can sort of extrapolate to IR a little bit more uh, and be a little bit more creative with it. So, but no, it's, I think there's one of the basic conundrums that we have and problems that we have in IR is there's no definition of what IR is. So when you walk into a practice, it usually falls to the bottom level of like accepting every request that the hospital needs. Every service wants to, you know, not dump, but like sort of ask IR and IR accepts all those requests when it might not necessarily be the best thing for the patient. You can do CT, you can do a fluoro study, you can do something else and take care of that patient at, in a better fashion and sort of keep that patient out of IR. And so I, I think once you sort of have the ability to sort of make those small changes to get those patients taken care of more efficiently, IR will give you a little bit of space that you can start bringing in bigger and bigger cases, mm -hmm. and then you could start growing it from there. Well, awesome. I think that was a great conclusion. Um, is there is there anything that we forgot on your on your flip list that you you want the folks to know? You know, it's a, it's at least a three-year process. It's stock, it's staff, it's doctors, it's group philosophy. You sort of have to take the physicians that you work with, as well as the referring doctors, and then get them on board with what you're trying to do. You're not trying to be the after-hour support for another group. You're not trying to do after-hour nephrostomy tubes for the urologists so that they can <laughs> run a really good urology practice during the day. Sure. You'll help them out for emergencies, but the, you know, you want them to come in as often as you come in and you can have those frank conversations with them. They'll respect you for having those conversations. The other thing is that if there's a meeting about IR, be at the meeting. Don't let another service represent you at a meeting. So if there is a meeting that happens about IR services, don't send an administrator, don't send a DR person, don't let somebody else represent you. There's a phrase that they say in the hospital that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> so if there's anything to do with IR services, be at that meeting. Absolutely. I, I didn't believe that until it happened to me. I, um, I started a service line at one hospital and it was like, it's like an outpatient based service line for something. And, uh, Another hospital found out about it and decided I was going to start offering that service at their hospital too. <laughs> and I was like, what? It's no, great. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's great, right? See, great. But totally, that's exactly what happens. Yeah. They will make all sorts of decisions and you'll be the IR used to be the solution to everybody's problems. And I still think that we're a great solution to a lot of problems and we are essential to hospitals' futures. And I think we underestimate how important we are to the hospital. And so we have a lot of leverage. We just sort of have to use it and move ourselves in the right direction and move us towards what we want to see an optimal IRDR practice to be. 
And I think, you know, you sort of have to have a philosophy of what you want that practice to be. And it can't be, it can't be not taking care of patients. It just has to be taking care of patients more efficiently. But yeah, that means that you got to be at the meetings. So, and you have to have somebody who can go to the meetings. That's the other thing. I do think there's a role for having dedicated administrative time for an IR chief who can go to meetings and represent you uh, and represent a section once it gets a big enough size. So a lot of people who are at programs or in jobs where there's not anybody who can represent IR, uh, that's usually where you see the most challenges and the most struggle mm. uh, for IR. Yeah. Well, Dr. Gagan, thanks again for being on the podcast. It's been such an informative hour. Honestly, I'm I'm left feeling very hopeful uh, about the future and uh, feeling like you know there's a path forward for young IRs, especially with leaders like you in our field. I think it's great. I think it's really exciting to have lots and lots of dedicated IRs coming out into practice. And I think there's, uh, I would love to see a strong IR department in every hospital, in every, in every state across the country. So I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Kennebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>